you have your copy of Scripture this morning, go to Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5. We're, we're continuing our verse-by-verse study through the book of Acts. Um, there's only one person in this room, as far as I know, that enjoys bluebell ice cream as much as I do. And, and uh, his name is Greg Grounds. And, and in fact, if you look at our text thread... Uh, there, there are pictures where he'll say, hey, have you seen this one yet? Or whatever, have you tried this one? And, and, and so we just really share that love. In fact, we made a determination that that wasn't going to be the only thing we talk about when we see each other, just ice cream. Uh, but, but we talk about other things. Our relationship is a little bit deeper than that. But uh, every once in a while, Bluebell uh, will offer a flavor uh, where they, they, kind, they tend to just kind of put too many ingredients in it. You ever, you ever notice that? It's like they're trying too hard. Uh, my wife used to be a lover of bluebell. She's kind of sinning and eating Hagen dazs now. But anyway, uh, but but there's one called uh, chocolate peanut butter overload, and uh, that it's really good. It's really good. But it's one of those those ice creams where you eat. I mean, it's so rich you can only eat a little bit of that. And uh, believe it or not, that ties into something that we're talking about this morning. What, what it reminded me of. I thought about this week. Uh, early, I was reading uh, Romans chapter eight. Read through the whole the, the whole uh, passage. In fact, that is on your assigned reading for this this next week. It's an assignment. Just read uh, the eighth chapter of Romans. And, and the reason I thought of bluebell with that is because uh, the, the, as I read that, I just I just saw how overloaded uh, with biblical truth, how chock full of biblical truths. Romans chapter 8 is. I mean, where, where Paul's talking about the, uh, the life and the spirit and our future glory. And he talks about our responsibility uh, in putting to death the deeds of our flesh, that that's the only way that we're going to walk in the spirit. But starting in verse 35, he offers a striking image of Christians living in a hostile world, and he gives us this image that is both terrifying and comforting at the same time. He used language in it where it's like, uh, he says that we are powerless, yet we cannot be defeated. We face fearsome opposition, yet we should not fear. We could have been slaughtered, yet we overwhelmingly conquer. And he presents, Paul presents a tension that seems impossible to maintain, and it is, in our natural uh, strength and ability, and that's part of our problem. Me, meaning the, the, the reason why uh, some of us are worn out, the reason where, why some of us, where the whole Christianity thing has just become so mundane and boring is because we're trying to live a supernatural walk in a natural ability. We're, not, we're trying to do it in our own power. But here's the good news, and this is kind of the big idea where we're launching off from here. God doesn't require his followers to have superhuman strength, genius-level intelligence, or heroic bravery to do his will. He just needs us to be faithful and obedient and to leave the business of conquering to him. And this is the lesson that, that, that God taught the first Christians as they are faced with their next major challenge. And I say next major challenge because it's just like our life. They're going to face one major challenge after the other. 
And in this narrative, Luke opens with a summary statement describing the rise of the church over a period of several weeks or months. You remember last week, it was a pretty exciting worship service when, when, when two people lied in church and God struck them both dead, Ananias and Sapphira. Remember that? That was pretty exciting. And, and so uh, verse 12 picks up with that story. Uh, again, this is, this is weeks and months over a period of time here. Verse 12 says, the apostles were performing many miraculous signs and wonders among the people, and all the believers were meeting regularly at the temple in the area known as Solomon's Colonnade. And this location is significant for several reasons. One, because this is where Peter and John had been arrested earlier. Second, this shows us that at this point that the first Christians were all Jewish, meaning that they can continue to meet in the temple. And the third thing it shows us, why it's significant, is that there was a constant flow of people coming in and out of the temple, that people would come from distant lands, a different, distant journey, would make a distant journey to come and sacrifice and worship in the temple. And so this was a prime location for the apostles to teach and preach about Jesus. Pick up in verse 13. But no one else dared to join them, even though all the people had high regard for them. And part of the reason, in fact, the next verse is going to seem a little bit confusing here. And part of the reason why they, people were hesitant to join them may have been uh, because they feared the religious leaders. We're going to talk more about that in a little bit. Uh, but, but another reason they were hesitant was because what the early church was preaching came with a cost. Notice verse 13. Verse 13 says, no one dared to join them. Verse 14 says, yet more and more people believed and were brought to the Lord in crowds of both men and women. I mean, it's almost like uh, the, these verses contradict uh, each other, but but, but, but they're not. Now, watch this. At this point, the church had a strong reputation of integrity and purity. And, and everyone knew that it was, serious, it was a serious thing to be a follower of Jesus. That, and no, no one saw it flippant. No one flippantly joined them. And again, part of it could have been because they heard about the worship service with Ananias, Ananias and Sapphira. I mean, it's serious business when God strikes somebody dead for lying in a morning worship service. That that had to have greatly reduced the level of casual commitment among the early believers. The apostles had no problem in, in gaining a following. They, you know, it says that they're, they're, provide, they're per, performing signs and wonders. You, you, can, you can draw a crowd with signs and wonders, but... Gaining true followers was a bit harder. Now, there, there are a lot of ways to, to draw a crowd. Uh, back in the 90s, I remember, or maybe even before then, back in the, the 80s, I remember hearing of a church in Dallas uh, where they would give a pet monkey away every week for the kid who brought the most kid, most of his friends to church. And so I'm not, I'm not sure, maybe they started getting salmonella or something, but, uh, or, but they stopped doing it. But but they did that just to gain a following. And, and though, uh, though the, the, the prizes over the years have gotten more sophisticated, there are a lot of churches that kind of do the same type of thing to grow a crowd and to get people into the building. And, and there's nothing wrong with that, nothing wrong with using stuff like that just to get people to draw people in. Uh, and, but, but at some point, 
There needs to be an invitation to follow Jesus. And here's a problem with some churches today. It is sometimes they draw a crowd, but, but the gospel they preach looks nothing like the real gospel. It's a watered-down version of if you say a prayer and sign, fill out a card, you give your life to Jesus, that your life is going to just go smoothly. That, that it's just awesome to follow Jesus, and it is. Don't get me wrong. But it's anything but smooth. It's anything but easy. And so any type of gospel that, that doesn't require, that doesn't present the gospel in a way that you've got to fully surrender, you've got to die to yourself, is not the true gospel. Any other gospel that is, is just kind of like an add-on. It's like a, a rabbit's foot that people pull out. They pull out the Jesus rabbit's foot when, 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 when life gets tough and they go to him. I know it sounds a little bit harsh, but an alarm should go off if you're a part of a church. I was talking about this with somebody. If, if you're a part of a church and all they talk about is big buildings and big events and, 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 and stuff like that, but you never talk about Jesus and never talk about what it costs to follow Jesus, an alarm should go off. Not, not everyone joined the early church, but it kept growing. And those who joined knew that it was a serious thing to be a follower of Jesus. Now, don't, don't get me wrong. Siri, you can be serious and still have fun. I mean, it's just, you know, I mean, there, we had a party the other night with our small our Christian our Sunday school class, and, and we had a whole lot of fun. There wasn't a bit of alcohol in the place. The crazy people in this church. Verse 15 says, as a result of the apostles' work, sick people were brought out into the streets on beds and mats so that Peter's shadow might fall across some of them as they went by. Now, that doesn't mean that Peter's shadow healed them. It just means that, that they came near to where the apostles were. It's like the, the, the woman in Matthew 9 who had an issue of blood, and she said, if I could just touch the hem of Jesus' garment, I'd be made whole. It's just coming near. I mean, besides, it wasn't Peter's shadow or the apostles that were doing the healing. It was the power of God working through them. And these miracles not only attracted new believers, but they confirmed the truth of their teaching, and they also demonstrated the fact that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead was now with his followers. Verse 16 says, Crowds came from the villages around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those possessed with evil spirits, and they were all healed. Unfortunately, when God starts working, the devil does too. And it's here where the apostles uh, come face to face with another round of opposition. Again, it's coming from the religious leaders. And for decades, uh, the, the Sadducees and Pharisees, uh, the religious leaders, had successfully maintained a delicate balance of power uh, between nationalistic Jews and Rome. And they, first, they, they used the threat of Roman cruelty to discourage any uprisings among the people. And at the same time, they convinced Rome uh, to, to, to keep their distance, that that would minimize any possibility of a revolution. This revolution, I mean, or this arrangement worked, and it gave the temple rulers an incredible amount of power and extreme wealth. But as the popularity of the church continued to grow, the, the, the temple officials began to see their power slipping away. 
Verse 17, the high priest and his officials who were Sadducees were filled with jealousy. And they arrested the apostles and put them in a public jail. Circle the word public there. Remember, uh, the, the, the first time they were arrested, uh, it was only Peter and John that were arrested. This time, all 12 were arrested. And, and I, I point out that they put them in public jail, uh, meaning, and, and I believe Luke points this out, number one, because uh, in, in the original language, the word public means that it was owned by the state. It was owned by Jerusalem. But, but second, uh, it, was, it was a jail that was open and visible to the crowd out that came to the temple. They, the, the people, when they came to town, they could see the prisoners there. And, and it was designed that way to embarrass and expose uh, those who were arrested, uh, but to also serve as a warning to any potential troublemakers. And most of the time, uh, it was effective. But the religious leaders failed to factor in the power of God. At this point, I, I want to point out one thing that we're, you'll have something to put in your handout, fill in the blank in your handout. I, I want to point out and, and just kind of bring to attention that even though the apostles had great power to do miracles and preach with great boldness, that they weren't free from hatred and persecution. The first takeaway this morning is this, is that following Jesus doesn't make troubles disappear it just makes them less frightening. Following Jesus doesn't make our troubles disappear. It just makes them less frightening. And we're going to come back to this. So the apostles are arrested and thrown in jail. Verse 19, but an angel of the Lord came at night and opened the, jail, uh, the gates of the jail and brought them out. And he told them, go to the temple and give the people this message of life. And so at daybreak, instead of fleeing the city, I mean, that's probably what I'd do if the jail was opened up. I'd probably get the bull out of Dodge. But, but they stayed. He did what the, the, the angel told them to do. They, they went to the temple and immediately began teaching. And when the high priest and his officials arrived, they convened the high council. This is the Sanhedrin, uh, the, the full assembly of the elders of Israel. The Sanhedrin was a ruling body of 71 members with the high priest as the chief officer. Verse 22, but when the temple guards went to the jail, the, the men were gone. So they returned to the council and reported the jail was securely locked with the guards standing outside. Uh, but, but, but when we opened the gates, no one was there. <clears throat> when the captain of the temple guard and the leading priest heard this, they were perplexed, wondering where it would all end. And then someone arrived with startling news. The men you put in jail are standing in the temple teaching the people. In the words of Potato Head in Toy Story, they're at it again. <laughs> Verse 26, and the captain went with his temple guards and arrested the apostles, but without violence, for they were afraid the people would stone them. Then they brought the apostles before the high council where the high priest confronted them. We, we gave you strict orders never to teach in this man's name. Again, notice they won't even say the name Jesus, this man. Instead, you have filled all Jerusalem with your teaching about him, and you want to make us responsible for his death. 
Notice verse 29. And once again, Peter and the apostles say, we must obey God rather than any human authority. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead after you killed him by hanging him on the cross. Then God put him in the place of honor at his right hand as prince and savior. He did this so the people of Israel would repent of their sins and be forgiven. And we are eyewitnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit who is given by God to those who obey him. Second takeaway is this. Is following Jesus requires long obedience in the same direction. Following Jesus requires long obedience in the same direction, and meaning that there will be many times and distractions. Uh, the, the distractions come, but there will be exit opportunities along the way, but there will also be situations where you cannot obey both God and man. That you, you're, not, you're going to come to a crossroads. You're going, to, you're going to be given the choice to obey God or obey a human authority. And in those times, we must obey God and trust his word. Yeah, now, it's nothing, shouldn't take us by surprise. Jesus said that in this world, you will have trouble, right? That, that don't be surprised. Since the world hated me, they're going to hate you. And so Romans 12, 18, he's, Paul says, do all that you can do to live at peace with everyone. But understand, there's going to be a world. There's going to be a, a, people that are opposing you constantly. Jesus uh, kind of puts it in perspective in Luke, and he said, when, when, when this happens, he says, what happiness it is when others hate you and ex exclude you and insult you and smear your name because you're mine. <laughs> what happiness? What blessing? When, when somebody persecutes you because you're standing for righteousness, when somebody persecutes you uh, but, but because you're, you're, you're walking in a way contrary to them. I mean, it, two perspectives about following Jesus is, number one, it will never be popular and accepted by the world. And number two, if our lives aren't contradicting what the world is preaching, then we're walking in the same direction. Sanhedrin has a huge problem on their hands because their intimidation is no longer working. Look at verse 30, 33. It says, when they heard this, the high council was furious and decided to kill them. And in verses 34 through 37, a Pharisee by the name of Gamaliel, uh, who was the most honored rabbi, he was a person that everybody looked up to and respected. He stood up in, in the group among the Sanhedrin, and, and he told them, he said, let's have the apostles leave the room. Interesting thing about Gamaliel, we'll, we'll see him later on. In, in Acts uh, chapter 22, Paul will tell us that he stuttered, studied under Gamaliel back when he was Saul. Remember, Paul, before he was Saul, was part of this group. And so there's a very good chance that Saul was in this room. And he was witnessing all that, that was happening to Jesus' followers. And so Gamaliel stands up and he reminds the Sanhedrin of two other movements and, and leaders who had gathered supporters around them 
uh, who eventually fizzled out and, and just kind of faded away after their leader was killed. And so, you know, it basically tells them, just give it time. This movement will fizzle out. It's going to pass. In verse 38, he gives them some advice. He says, my advice is leave these men alone. Let them go. If they are planning and doing these things merely on their own, it will soon be overthrown. But if it's from God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You may even find yourself fighting against God. Now, if I had time, we'd talk a little about it. You ever have those times in your life where you feel like you're fighting against God? You're crossways with God. Verse 40, so they take Gamaliel's advice to, to not kill them. Instead, they called in the apostles and had them flogged. And they ordered them again to never again speak in the name of Jesus. And then they let them go. The, the, the word flogged is a general term that means to strike, beat, or whip. And a Jewish flogging uh, was different than Roman flogging. Roman, flog Roman flogging uh, was much more severe. It could literally kill a man. Uh, a good Roman soldier mastered his flogging technique uh, to where he could flay and part the skin of the person that he was beating. I mean, that's what they did to Jesus. Jewish flogging required 40 lashes, and the, the hands of the individual would be tied to a post, and a third of the lashes would be given to the front of the body, and the other lashes, the other two-thirds of the lashes would be given to the back, and they, they would often stop at 39 in case they lost track of the count. Flogging was a means to punish, demean, and humiliate the person. I want to point out that this is the first time, won't be the last time, this is the first time that the apostles have been physically abused for their faith. And notice their response. They've been beaten, ordered again, never speak in the name of Jesus again. And verse 41 says, the apostles left the high council rejoicing that God had counted them worthy to suffer disgrace for the name of Jesus. I mean, they, they knew how Jesus had suffered, and they praised God that, 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 that they could be persecuted the way their Lord was. They, they, they considered it a blessing. As they're walking out of the room, they're high-fiving each other, rejoicing that they would be worthy of the persecution. We're later, later told that when Peter is crucified for his faith later on. That, that he rejoiced so much in that that they turned his cross upside down and crucified him that way. I, I'm not sure if this would be my response. I mean, I hope it would be, but I, I'm, not, I'm not sure. But when you think about it, if you've been following the story, this is actually an answer to the prayer. I mean, not the beatings or the jail, uh, but, but you remember what they prayed for in chapter 4? They prayed for a supernatural boldness to share Jesus. And, and so this is, a, this is an answer to prayer. God, give us supernatural boldness. That, that's a dangerous prayer. Question, do you ever pray a prayer like that? 
God, give me the opportunity to stand for righteousness. God, give me the, 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 the opportunity to share the gospel with that, that person at school. God, give me boldness. The third takeaway uh, is this, is that, that there's a supernatural grace that comes with supernatural boldness. Meaning that if we dare to pray a prayer like that, 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 that God would, would, would empower us with his grace to do whatever he calls us to. Peter and John are, are, are now, and the rest of the apostles have, have been warned repeatedly not to preach, but they continue in spite of the ridicule and, and threats, in spite of the beatings, that they were willing to pay the price. Verse 42 says, And every day in the temple, from house to house, now it's moved into home Bible studies, from house to house, they continue to teach and preach this message that Jesus is the Messiah. talk about this all the time, that it's easy to look back at, at the early church and to think uh, that this first batch of Christians uh, as being larger than life, like they were almost even superhuman. I mean, especially uh, when you consider uh, the disadvantages they face compared to today. I mean, that they had no building, that they had no government protection. In fact, the government was very much against them. Uh, they had no guarantee of privacy, no freedom of speech, no assurance of due process or fair hearings. Uh, they had very little in the way of tangible resources, no political power or education. And in a physical sense, they had everything working against them. Yet these ordinary men and women were used by God to literally change the world. But they didn't do it in their own strength. They, they, it wasn't because they were some super talented group of people. In fact, they, they would have never been equal to the challenges they faced had it not been for the Holy Spirit. They endured and conquered in the power of the Holy Spirit. The same power that is available to his followers today. And we're going to need it. Because what God has called us to is not natural. It's supernatural. And the primary requirement for us to experience the supernatural power of God is that we die to self. And that's not natural. To not defend ourselves or retaliate when someone criticizes us is not natural. To not care about what people think of us, even when they're wrong, is not natural. To not be a little fearful about the future is not natural. To not be afraid to share Jesus with someone is not natural. They all go against our flesh and our human nature. It comes down to the point of this, that following Jesus and doing what he asks us to do cannot be done in our natural abilities. And again, that, that's the reason why some of you, why all this is so boring to some of you, why some of you just kind of checked out is because you're tired of fighting. Man, I get that. I get that. 
It's because you're trying to do a supernatural work in your own power. Remember John 10, 10, Jesus said the thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy, but I've come to give you life and to give it to you more abundantly. And over and over, he, he continued to present a different kind of life. He said things like, don't be weighed down by anxiety, fear, or anger. Stop trying to serve two masters. Love others as you love yourself. Be, be a reflection of God's grace and love to those around you. He even called us to patrol our pleasures uh, but because he knows that those pleasures will have a tendency to control our lives and conquer our hearts. He even calls us to love those who hate us, to bless those who persecute us. I mean, it's like everything he requires us of his followers is the opposite of what comes natural to us. I mean, if you didn't know better, you would think that he was after transformation in our life. And he is. And then that may be a surprise to some of you that maybe were heard or were offered and responded to a watered-down version of the gospel that if you gave your life to Jesus, that, that, that everything in your life would be easy and blessed. And again, following Jesus is a blessed life, but it's far from easy. And it's impossible to do in our own power, and unless we learn to walk in the power of the Spirit, the abundant life Jesus talked about is going to be nothing but a pipe dream to us. But you don't have to stay there. You, following Jesus will come with a cost. And part of God's transforming our, our, our heart and our character, here, here's the cost. And part of God's transforming our heart and character requires us to go through hard times. And it hurts. And it's super uncomfortable. And it goes against our natural desires and response. But it's God's way of refining us into vessels that he can use. Just, just, just so when we talk about the cost of following Jesus, the cost of anointing, the cost of walking in the power of the Holy Spirit, that the cost is, here's the price that we have to pay. We have to be willing to be steadfast and faithful in the refining, purifying seasons of life. When the heat is turned up and God uses the hard things in our life to stretch, shape, and transform us from being natural to supernatural, to becoming a faithful servant of God, someone who is so in, in touch with Jesus, so in step with Jesus. It's like they have the mind of Christ. It's like they walk in a supernatural confidence and boldness. Their eyes are opened up to the things of God. They see the needs and the people around them. They, they, they not only see them, but they see their responsibility in meeting those needs and being the hands and the feet of Jesus. That's the cost. It means that you're willing to do what you have to do, to go through what you need to go through, to be who God wants you. And it hurts. It's stretching. It's, a, it's uncomfortable and sometimes it's a bit fiery, but it's worth it. 
in your notes, I gave you three things that we're going to worship something. Three things, three practical ways. When you find yourself in a situation uh, that comes against your flesh, the, uh, a situation that's over your head, there's three proclamations that we can make, three choices that we have, uh, three determinations. The first one is this. I will do what God asked me to do. That's a determination. It's just, you write, it's written on my heart that God, when you when you command, I'll do what you ask me to do. Second thing is this. There, there's times, and you probably have discovered this, there's times when he asks you to do something you don't have the power to do. And in those times, the second declaration, God, I will give you what I can't do. I'll give it to you. I'm, I'm wearing myself out trying to do it, and I don't have it in my power. God, I'm surrendering to you. I'm going to do what I can do. I'm going to give you what I can't do. And the third de declaration is no matter what, I'm going to trust in the sovereignty of God that you know all, you see all, and you're in full control. Let's stand for